Well, good morning. Um, it is, it's great to be with you. Um, hope you've had a good Easter. Hope you've managed to get a bit of a, a, bit of a break, um, either this week or last week. Um, if, you've, if you've been here over the last while, over the last few months, um, you'll know that we've been following the end of Luke's account of the life of Christ. Uh, and last week we thought about Jesus' death and resurrection. The very cornerstones of our faith. And now we, we come to this story, uh, a story about a, a couple of guys who have lost hope. And Jesus comes to them and shows them that, that hope comes from the very word of God. And our hope is made certain by the truth of the resurrected Jesus. So we, we come to this passage and it's still the, the very day of the resurrection. And two of Jesus' followers are on the road uh, heading home, it seems. Their, their leader is dead. He wasn't who they thought he was going to be. They're deeply disappointed. They're grieving. And now that Jesus has been, been murdered by their own religious leaders, it seems that they're getting out of Dodge pretty quickly. And it seems at least one of them maybe has a house um, in this place, a mess. Perhaps they're thinking about going back to their old lives, keeping their heads down. In their eyes, they've, they've absolutely no reason to stay. It's all over. So they leave. They leave even though they've been hearing some, some weird, some pretty strange stories from the other followers. And even members of the Eleven earlier that morning, they still decide to walk away. They've lost their hope. So they begin this journey. And along the way, they're trying to process what on earth they've just witnessed. How could this have gone so wrong so fast? Only a handful of days earlier, Jesus had been surrounded by crowds shouting, Hosanna! Proclaiming him as the king coming in the name of the Lord. He had cleared the temple of those using it for profit instead of prayer. He had silenced all of his critics by expertly answering their questions and seeing through their lies and tricks. He seemed unstoppable. They were sure that he was about to fulfill his destiny as the one prophesied to redeem Israel. And then all of a sudden, out of seemingly nowhere, he's betrayed, arrested, abandoned, unfairly tried, mocked. The crowds now shout, crucify him. He's bruised and whipped and beaten and nailed to a cross. Where the mocking continues until he's dead. And that hope that they had, it seems to die with him. And then to make matters worse, his body has somehow gone missing. And the women, hysterical in their grief, are spouting nonsense about angels, the previous passage tells us. And as they're walking along in this journey, perhaps a couple of hours, they're trying to get their heads around all of this to make sense of it all. When all of a sudden, they're joined by somebody else. Somebody coming from Jerusalem. 
We know it's the risen Jesus. But for some reason, he decides to withhold his identity from them for now. And we see Jesus ask them a question. What are you guys talking about? And this, it stops them dead in their tracks. As it brings the the reality of the whole situation flooding back to them. And almost every major Bible translation, including the newer version of the NIV, it puts the response in verse 18 slightly differently. It puts it like this. This is from the ESV. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? He's saying, how could you not know what's happened? Everybody in Jerusalem has seen or heard about this. And Jesus could have, could have so easily responded with, with something like, fellas, I'm the only person on this planet who does know what just happened. But he doesn't. He has blinded their eyes to himself for, for a reason. And he doesn't give himself away quite yet. Because he's got something to teach these guys. And he's something to teach us here as well. And instead, Jesus encourages them to explain what's happened. What follows is the, the gospel according to Cleopas. Look again at verses 19 to 24 for me there. This is, this is an, an almost great little summary of the gospel. What things? He asked. Cleopas answers, but, but Jesus of Nazareth? He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. So we have the ministry of Jesus in word and deed, how he has come to show us how to live, how he demonstrated God's power. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. We have the crucifixion, the culmination of his earthly ministry. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We have mention even of the hope for redemption through Christ. And what is more, it is the third day since all this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They, they went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who had said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But they did not see Jesus. And we even have mention of the resurrection, evidenced by a group of women, an angelic vision, and backed up by the disciples. But like I said, it's almost a great little summary of the gospel. Hopefully, as, as we've read through it, you've noticed some reasons why we might not be too keen to put this up on a billboard at the front of the church. It's a wee bit like a spot the difference, isn't it? Do you ever get those puzzles that you did where you had the two pictures and you had to circle the differences? We could go through, you could go through that little account of Cleopas and you could circle all the things that are just slightly wrong with what he's saying. Let me just point out a few of them to you and then uh, hopefully going to show you what the, the problem is for Cleopas and maybe how this might apply to us. First off, he refers to Jesus as a prophet. Now it's true, Jesus was the fulfilment of the prophets, but he was so much more. And from the reference to their hope that Jesus was going to be the one to redeem Israel, clearly Cleopas believed that Jesus was more than a prophet previously. 
I wonder if he had been asked, who is this Jesus guy a few days earlier? Would his response have been, he's the Messiah? I think it might have been. So we see Cleopas in his disappointment and grief has lost hope in who Jesus is. Secondly, he believes that the cross means that the hope of redemption through Christ is gone. Jesus is about to show him that the cross actually is the means of that very redemption. And not just for Israel, but for all of God's people. Cleopas has also lost his hope in what Jesus has come to do. And finally, the last big one, I think, is the complete disregard of the evidence for the resurrection. They have no trust in the testimony of the women. They've completely missed the radical prominence Jesus has given to women right throughout his ministry. They've also completely missed what Jesus said about his own resurrection throughout his time on earth. From what he says, Cleopas clearly knows a lot about Jesus, but he hasn't really understood Jesus. He's lost hope. And that has led to him losing hope in all of those around him. He no longer believes or even trusts his friends. The gospel of, of Cleopas is a, a message totally devoid of hope. So it's really no gospel at all. There may be some facts in there, but there's no good news. These guys have all the pieces of the puzzle. But in their hopelessness, their eyes are down, focused on the troubles of their lives, and they can't look up and see the bigger picture, to see how all those pieces fit together. And this loss of, of hope has left their hearts cold, and them heading in the wrong direction. I wonder, do, do we cling to a, a gospel of hope? We might have a, a bit of a head start on these guys, you might think, because we can see the bigger picture, can't we? We know that Jesus rose from the dead. We can see more clearly how all the pieces of that puzzle that they're struggling with fit together. But I wonder when struggles arise, when disappointments and grief comes our way, when the world weighs heavy on us, are we just as tempted to focus on our problems rather than the hope we have in Christ? I've, I've struggled with this over the years with, with jobs. Um, I, I trained as a teacher, as many of you know, um, and the year I came out of Strand, I applied for like 30 or 40 different jobs. And rejection letter after rejection letter came flooding in. You're not qualified enough, you're not experienced enough. Um, got a handful of, of interviews. Uh, some of them were awful. Um, some of them were really awful. Um, some I, I managed to come second in, uh, which is nearly worse than just not getting it at all, to be phoned up and said, you came second, you were really close, but you still don't get to have a job. Um, and the temptation and to my shame, the, the reality during those times was to let the anger and the disappointment and the discouragement um, that I was feeling lead me to lose hope. Lead me to lose hope in the, the sovereignty and the love of my God. And I found myself praying less and less. I found myself reading my Bible less and less. I just 
wasn't interested. <clears throat> because like Cleopas, I was focused on the wrong thing. And just like him, my picture of who Jesus is was getting totally messed up. The very time when I should have been relying more than ever on Christ and my hope in him, I was choosing instead to focus on my earthly problems. And like these guys on the road to a mess, it was causing me to be heading in the wrong direction. Looking back on it now and seeing how distant from God I was, how hopeless I felt at times, I can now see with hindsight just how much God was working in that situation and how much he was actually blessing me and, and drawing me through at that time, but I just couldn't see it. I know, guys, compared to what some of you guys have faced and are going through, that example probably feels a bit trivial. Uh, but I wonder, can you relate to, to what, we're, what we're talking about in this passage here? So these guys, grieving, disappointed, hopeless. And what does Jesus come and, and do? Does he come and comfort them? No, he gives off to them. He says, how foolish are you? And how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Jesus is going to bring them comfort and hope. But first, he cuts to the core of their problem. When he calls them foolish, that is not him calling them stupid or uneducated or anything like that. That's a, a moral assessment. It's talking about where they are in relation to God. Psalm 14 verse 1 shows us this. The fool says in his heart there is no God. In the Bible, being foolish or wise is an assessment of where our hearts are and where they're focused. We're wise when we're focused on God and we're foolish when our focus is anywhere else. These guys are not dumb. They have plenty of knowledge about Jesus. But their hearts are slow to believe in the hope that Jesus came to give. So Jesus begins this process of bringing that hope and that life that we should all be clinging to every second to them. And where does he go to show them this hope? He goes to God's word. He goes to scripture. And he's saying to them... You guys have no excuse. You, should have, you shouldn't have even needed all the stuff you've seen and heard over the last few years because I am so clearly evident in the scriptures, in what we call the Old Testament. Those scrolls that they would have learnt from as boys, heard, read on the Sabbath, at every festival. Jesus is saying, if you'd really been waiting for the true Messiah, if you'd got it, you would have recognized me from the moment you saw me and you would have known that my death was never meant to be the end. And then he takes them through the scriptures from the books of Moses through all the prophets and he points to himself. What a sermon that must have been. Be a bit better than this one. 
to see Jesus, who was there along with the Father and the Spirit right from the beginning, show how through the whole of Scripture he is there. And to point to that redemptive plan of God through him through all of that time. We can only imagine what they they talked about um, in that time on the road. Genesis 3.15, the descendant of Eve who would crush the head of the serpent, but not without suffering himself. The covenant with Noah, the covenant with Abraham, justified by his faith in the promise to come. Moses, the exodus, God saving his people from slavery and judgment of Pharaoh. The law pointing to the fact that we cannot save ourselves. We need a saviour. The kingdom pointing to a greater kingdom to come. The king pointing to a greater king to come. The temple pointing to Christ, the new temple through whom we would be truly connected to our God. The prophecies of Isaiah, Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Daniel, Micah, um, Malachi, and how they all reference future events that were fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's barely scratching the surface. Um, R.C. Sproul, who I think is one of the, the, the modern sort of greats of Reformed theology, he says this, Christ is the thread woven through all of Scripture. He is the thing that binds it all together. And on the road that day, Jesus showed these guys exactly that. And the pieces of the puzzle, they start to fall into place. We see this later on when they say, we're not our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road and opened the scriptures to us. As God's life-giving word is opened up, it should cause a reaction. Through the Spirit, it has the power to break hard hearts, to cut to the core of people's unbelief, to turn the tiniest flicker of hope and faith into a raging flame, like it does for these guys on the road. And it leads them like it should lead us to encounter the risen Christ. If we want to live as faithful and hopeful Christians, we need to be immersed in God's word. And yet how often are we tempted to leave it on the shelf? How often do we, do we blandly skip over a few verses to tick a box? And how often in discussions with friends and family, with workmates or teammates about Christians and Christianity or moral issues, and we maybe talk a lot about our faith, um, but we never actually use God's word. It's a wee bit like going into battle and refusing to draw your sword simply because the person you're fighting says that your sword doesn't work. I'd rather find out for myself. Hebrews 4.12 says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It's just one of the descriptions of the, of the word of God um, in Scripture, and there are loads of them. <clears throat> is the Bible just a book to you? 
or do we treat the Bible as God's living, active word, which draws us closer to him, that gives us strength and assurance and hope? Strength and assurance and hope that we need as this fallen world tries to douse that flame within us? And do we share this this life-giving word with others who are in desperate need of the hope of the risen Christ? In this passage, Jesus gives us a, a great example of how to interact with people we meet each day. People who may need the hope, um, who may need hope but, but have no idea where true hope comes from. What do we do? Well, we, we draw alongside them. We build relationship with them. We discover where their, their issues and hopelessness lies. And we bring to them the hope of Christ contained in this powerful word of God. And we hope and pray that the Holy Spirit will lead that person to an encounter with the risen Christ. Just as it did for these two guys on the road. Just as it has done for so many of us. And we see the result of that encounter. The truth of God's word rekindles their faith and hope. And Christ then reveals himself to them. The pieces of that puzzle finally fall into place as they see the truth of all that Christ has taught them on the road. Their despair and hopelessness gone. They immediately rush back to start sharing the true gospel with others who are in need of this incredible hope. So what do we learn on the road to Emmaus? Well, when we take our eyes off the truth of what God has taught us and shown us and focus instead on our problems and grief and burdens, we can very quickly lose heart and lose hope. Our picture of who God is can become distorted and wrong and we can end up easily heading in the wrong direction. But Christ has shown us that we need to focus instead on him and on his life-giving word. That is where our hope and our strength comes from. Remembering the significance of what he did for us that first Easter. And then to go. To go and share that hope to a world that so desperately wants hope and assurance. But is blind as to where that hope is truly found. Blind until the Spirit brings them to an encounter with the risen Christ. And Christ has chosen to use us as his instruments to bring his word of hope to those we meet. So let's do that. And let's pray that he will make their hearts burn for him as he did with those disciples on the road that day. Let's pray. Lord, we, um, we come before you, Lord, and we thank you. Lord, we thank you um, for how much you loved us. Lord, we thank you for what you did for us that first Easter. Lord, we thank you that you were willing 
to give up your life for us, to give up your life on the cross, um, Lord, for, for, for us who so often, who constantly um, live in a way that is, that is not pleasing to you, who constantly go against you, who are constantly headed in the wrong direction, and yet, Lord, you didn't show us the justice we deserve, but instead you poured out your grace upon us, and you went to the cross to take our sin, to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Lord, we thank you for your plan of redemption. Lord, we thank you that you are so evident right throughout history, right throughout the entirety of Scripture. Lord, it is all about how you were bringing your people back to yourself, Lord, after we messed it all up. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that Christ is so evident in it. And Lord, we thank you that it is not just a book, Lord, but that it is your word. And that through it, Lord, you cut like a, like a surgeon. You cut to the core of, of what is wrong with us. And you bring us hope. And you bring us faith and you bring us life. And Lord, we pray that you will help us, Lord, to see your word as living and active, that we will look to your word and to who you are, Lord, for our strength and hope and assurance, Lord, and we will take that word, that life-giving word, out of here, Lord, and into a world in need. In the knowledge uh, and trusting, Lord, that, that you, through your spirit, will work through your word to change hearts, to break hearts, to melt hearts, and to, to turn that, that little spark of hope, that little spark of faith, into a flame. So, Lord, we just thank you for, for what you have done for us, Lord. And we pray that you will help us, Lord, as we go from this place to, to live for you, um, Lord, in, in word and in deed. And that we will just show that, that life that you have given to us to a world in need. Amen.